We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to respond to a critic who claims that I'm being too rational as a Christian and that Christians are obligated to faith and faith alone. And any defense of the faith of Christianity based on reason is heretical. I'll also answer the question, what's a bigot? And are those who are claiming Christians are bigots guilty of the self-same sin? In other words, is it the pot calling the kettle black? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Well, as you know, this is the morning after Easter. And some 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, after being crucified and buried, proved that he was exactly who he claimed to be by rising from the dead. Now, if you listen to last week's show, I made this point. In fact, I argued very clearly and very specifically that it's the resurrection that proves Christianity to be true. It's the resurrection that affirms, confirms, that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. I made the point by referring to scripture as well as many different Christian scholars that it's the resurrection that makes the difference. And without the resurrection, we are among all people the most to be pitied. That's a direct quotation from the Apostle Paul. You know, I went back to some of the creeds. I cited the Athanasian Creed. I cited the Nicene Creed. I cited the Apostles' Creed. And I cited the Creed in 1 Corinthians 5 where the Apostle Paul actually sets out the parameters for the basics of Christianity. That Jesus Christ was real. He was a real human being. He was God incarnate. In fact, as the Apostle John says, he was the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. And without him was not anything made that was made. And the Apostle Paul, some three to five years probably, after the events themselves, in other words, less than a handful of years after the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul himself refers to those events and tells us that over 500 people witnessed Jesus walking and talking and eating and fellowshipping among them after he rose from the grave and before he ascended into heaven. I also pointed out that there's no record in, in history at all of anybody refuting that claim. And isn't that odd? If, if you had 500 people at least that were alive at the time Paul made this claim, don't you think you'd have some record of somebody coming forward and saying, wait a second, I've fact-checked this and it's just not so. Don't you think there would have been some modern-day version of Snopes or whatnot out there where people would say, no, 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 this is fake news. Y'all are making this up. This is ridiculous. It didn't happen. I was in that group of 500 that you're talking about and no. We did not see any such thing. Well, that is not, in fact, reflected in history. You've got no record of anybody saying that. Well, anyway, in my article that I wrote for the Washington Times, which was essentially a summary of last week's show, I made this point, and that we can be reasonably sure. We can use reason, logic. We can use the empirical evidence. We can research the story. 
we can actually have confidence that the story of the resurrection is a fact and it's not a fable. Well, and as the result of, of writing that article, I received a couple challenges. One challenge in particular said, this is heresy. You shouldn't be arguing this way for the case of Christianity or the case for the resurrection or the case for the veracity of the story of Christ. You're, you're using rationality and reason. And the Bible says that it's by faith and faith alone that we're saved. And my critic went on to say that it, Christianity is about faith. Uh, it's, it's, not about, it's not about our rational capacities or, or logic. In fact, we're told that it, without faith, no one comes to the Father. So I'm going to respond to that in today's show, and I'm also going to take a little bit of a rabbit t- trail and respond to another critic who, who said that, you know, essentially Christians are all bigots. You all are crazy. Uh, you want to ram your religion down everybody else's throat, and you think you're right, and therefore you're the worst bigots on the face of the earth. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, so welcome back to the Rebellion. So I want to, let's go over the story again. Now, it's a repeat, but this is good stuff, so it's important for you to hear this and understand What I'm saying, the the point I'm making with regard to the most important news story in all of human history, it's it's an article that I wrote for the Washington Times, and it's a it's a titan version of the argument I made last week on the show. I started out by saying this: What would you say if you were asked to name the one news story that changed the course of all of human history more than any other? Would you cite the shot heard round the world, which sparked the American Revolutionary War and led to the creation of the United States? Or would you suggest that it was the French Revolution, or the Bolshevik Revolution, or even Mao's Cultural Revolution? Or maybe you'd say it was the Sexual Revolution of the 1960s. Or if you're a millennial or a Gen Zer, you might argue that it was the death of George Floyd, and the rise of BLM, and the consequent march of social justice across the the modern-day globe. If I ask you to cite the one news story that has that has changed the course of human history more than any other. Would you cite one of these things, or would you, 
Would you talk about communism and the Soviet Union and the hundred million dead? Would you talk about Cambodia? Would you talk about uh, Castro and Cuba? Would you talk about Hitler? I didn't mention that in any of the options here. And the rise of the Third Reich and World War II. Would you talk about climate change and global warming? What would be the news story? What would catch your attention the most if you were to cite the one thing, the one story, the one bit of news that has changed the world? What would you say? Well, I went on last week to argue that if you want to look at it quantitatively, statistically, empirically, and if that if stats mean anything, statistics have any value, the number one story in all of recorded history, it can't be any of these, because none of these stories measure up statistically to the one story, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that has changed more lives than anything else in the course of human events. It's impacted more lives than any other revolution. It's not about a revolution, it's about a resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I make that claim? Well, currently, statistics show, analysis says that 2.2 billion, that's with a B, billion people define themselves as Christians. I'm not arguing that they're all born again, but what I am saying is that you've got 2.2 billion people that'll check the box Christian. If they're asked, what's their faith? What's their worldview? What's their religion? What's their philosophy that they live by? Or at least supposedly so. 2.2 billion people define themselves as Christians. So you, you might want to argue or assume that a number that huge would lead us to safely assume Christianity is history's most dominant worldview, right? In fact, statistically, it is. There are more Christians than Muslims, than Buddhists, than Hindus. Christianity is the number one worldview, philosophy, religion in the world. And what is the non-negotiable here is that that is quantitatively the most influential idea. Um, And also, what's non-negotiable is Christianity is defined by somebody other than you and me. You don't make it up as we go. And what is the defining fact of Christianity? That Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is critical. For Christians, the resurrection of Christ has never been considered a fairy tale or a religious metaphor. The resurrection of Christ is always and has always been considered an actual event, right? That's what we just celebrated this past Sunday. The earliest creeds talk of this. All of them affirm the, the, uh, the virgin birth, the life, the death, crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. All of the creeds refer to that. And Paul, St. Paul, wrote the first century church in Corinth just a handful of years after the crucifixion. And he talked about this, this early event, this one singular event that biblically speaking, literally shook shook the earth and darkened the sun and rent the veil in two. You remember the story of Good Friday, that there was an earthquake, the sun was darkened, and the veil in the temple actually rent in two. It tore in two at the time of Jesus's actual death, when he gave up his spirit and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So here's the creed that the Apostle Paul refers to. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers 
at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then last of all, he appeared to me also. Close quote. That's the Apostle Paul. And as I mentioned to you last week, that is a creed. Paul is quoting what he has received from others. That isn't um, original with Paul. He's quoting something that he had handed down to him. It's a creed that already existed within the early church. And as I said, history, reason, okay, scholarship, that points to the reality that this creed was probably put into play, written down and passed on orally and in writing from Christian to Christian as early as three to five, less than 10 years after, after the events themselves. Okay? So I want you to listen to that creed again. Notice the simplicity and the lack of equivocation. I want you to hear the clarity of Paul's words. This is of first importance. Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. And I, as well as hundreds of others, can attest to this as a fact. It's not fake news. So it's not a fable. It's not just wishful thinking. The resurrection is true. And hundreds of witnesses initially attested to it, and billions upon billions of believers have subsequently affirmed the resurrection throughout the millennia. So stated simply, the resurrection is the core of Christianity, and without it, there is no such thing as a Christian. You, you can't claim Christianity if you deny the resurrection. It is the core. Paul even says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. If Christianity gives us hope only in this life only, we are of all people the most pitied. So, again, <laughs> if, if you don't have the resurrection, Paul himself is saying, our faith is futile and we should be pitied. Rather than, rather than extolled. So you can't get any clearer than this. Without the resurrection, Christianity is pointless. It's a waste of time. Or as Adrian Rogers, a Christian scholar, Southern Baptist preacher and leader, as he once said, the resurrection is not merely important to history, historic Christian faith. One more time on that. The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. There would be no Christianity without it. Close quote, Adrian Rogers. And here's another one from Erling Olson, an old scholar. Whoever reads the New Testament seriously must acknowledge that one outstanding historic event alone spurred the small band of ordinary men to an amazing task, defying every obstacle, suffering loss of home, persecution, even death itself. They evidenced the supreme relevance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Close quote. So, in short, Christians don't claim Christianity because God promises we live a more pleasant life than the atheist. God doesn't make any such promises. But in, rather like Lee Strobel, a, a, a man who is very much alive, not, not that old, Lee Strobel, um, Case for Christ, Christ, Case for the Resurrection, he's written multiple books, Apologetics. He says this, we become Christian because the evidence is so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead, close quote. And here's another one. Paul Chappell says this, because of the empty tomb, we have peace. Because of his resurrection, we can have hope during even the most troubling of times. Charles Spurgeon, an iconic uh, pastor, preacher, and defender of the faith, said this, we believe that every deathbed is a resurrection. 
that God is with us in our grave and now with us, or rather we with him in the resurrection. You see the common theme here? These, these scholars, these Christian leaders are citing the resurrection. Everybody from the Apostle Paul to Charles Spurgeon that I've cited thus far. Charles Swindoll, he says this, the benefits of the resurrection are innumerable. To list a few, our illnesses don't seem nearly so final. Our fears fade and lose their grip. Our grief over those who have gone on is diminished. Our desires to press on despite the obstacles are rejuvenated. Our identity as Christians is strengthened. As we stand in the lengthening shadows of the saints down through the centuries, who have always answered back in antiphonal voice, he is risen indeed. That's a quote from Charles Swindoll. So here's a hymn, and I closed my article, and I closed last week with this. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Hallelujah. Happy Easter, I said. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, now that we're, we're finished with Easter, many of you would resonate with these statements and you probably even sang that hymn, I'm almost sure that you probably were greeted by the pastor and others in your church this past Easter Sunday with, Christ is risen. And then you responded, he is risen indeed. Why? Because the resurrection is the focal point. It is the pivot upon which all else turns. Without the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. I'll say it again. I'll quote Adrian Rogers here. The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. There would be no Christianity without it, without the resurrection. So I made this point last week, and what happened is rather peculiar. I received one criticism from my buddy named Harry on Facebook that I found a bit surprising even for him. Now, Harry's this guy I've referred to several times on the show. He trolls me on a weekly basis, and he disagrees with everything I say. But the interesting thing is, Harry disagrees with me because he sees me as a heretic, and he views himself as the true Christian. Harry's also very liberal, very progressive in his politics. So I can understand if somebody's trolling me because they disagree with my politics a lot more than I can understand somebody who's trolling me because they want to claim that I'm a heretic. I'm not really Christian, that they're more Christian than me. Well, on this particular issue, Harry really takes me to task. I want to read to you what he says. He says, Piper always gets the detail wrong. Jesus' resurrection is truly the great headline, says Harry. But Piper writes about faith, and when he does so, he writes with bad theology. And then he goes on and says this, when Piper writes that Lee Strobel says we become Christians because the evidence is so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead, close quote, that's what Lee Strobel wrote, and that's what I quoted, and this is what Harry is taking issue with. So I want to go back and read that again. Piper writes, by quoting Lee Strobel, that we become Christian because the evidence is so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead, close quote. And then Harry goes on and says this, that is dead wrong. Human reason or weighing of evidence has zero to do with faith. You hear what he's saying? Human reason 
and weighing evidence has zero, nothing, nada, to do with faith, biblical faith, saving faith. And then Harry goes on. Paul writes in the, in the epistle to the Ephesians, For by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Now, that is biblical. Harry is accurately citing the words of Paul in his letter to the church of Ephesus. So Harry goes on. He says, there are no works involved here. There is no human reason involved. Full stop right there. There's a huge difference between saying that your salvation is not of works. There's nothing in the Bible that says your salvation is not of reason. There's nothing in that verse that says, don't use your mind, don't use your head, don't consider the evidence, don't be rational. There's nothing in the Bible that defines faith as emotion disconnected from any investigation or any consideration of the facts. There's zero in the Bible that says that. In fact, we are told over and over again in Scripture that the reason many of the books, if not all the books, were written in the first place was to convince us of the truth of the faith. Luke says that he wrote his gospel so that we would consider the evidence laid before us and understand that what he was writing and what others had written and said was true. The, the Apostle Paul is clear in his epistles that he's admonishing and encouraging people to consider the evidence, consider the facts before them. The book of Acts is written for the same reason. The Bible is written so that you will consider, so that you can be taught, so that you can use your rational capacities, use your mind. There's nothing in the verse or in the Bible where it says, by faith you are saved. Now, it doesn't say by faith you're saved. It says, by grace you are saved, through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes, it's not because you go out and earn your salvation by being a good person. That's the point. It's not making the point that you are supposed to set aside your rational capacities, your ability to think, to debate, to understand, to grasp the truths that are being presented to you through the Bible. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. Now, some would argue, yeah, but even that ability to think clearly about God's revelation to us, about the resurrection or anything else, is given to us through God's grace. I agree. John Wesley called it prevenient grace, that we're so corrupt, we're broken, we're so sinful, that we can't even think clearly. Our rational capacities are, are, are broken. And it's only because God's prevenient grace, because of God's grace, that we're, we're able to even think about accepting, understanding, embracing the biblical truths before us. I agree with that. But that does not mean that faith is synonymous with thoughtlessness, that faith is equivalent to a total abandonment of reason and your rational capacities. Harry goes on and says this, there are no works involved. There's no human reason involved. That's not true. In fact, don't you understand, as you listen to Harry's argument, he's using reason to refute reason. He's writing sentences right now that are rational. He's using his own reason, his own rational capacities to refute my column and my argument. 
your column, your argument. He is arguing against another point, and that is an exercise of reason. He wouldn't waste his time or his breath if he didn't believe that his argument was superior to mine. And that assumption, as well as that action, presupposes that his argument is more reasonable than my column or what I'm saying right now. So he's sawing off the branch upon which he sits. He's like a dog chasing his tail. It makes no sense. It's self-refuting to use reason to claim that there is no human reason involved while you're using the instrument, the weapon, if you will, of reason to battle against what you claim is too reasonable. This is crazy talk. This is asinine. He goes on and says, one does not weigh any evidence. Really? Well, then why did the apostle Paul tell us to consider the evidence? Why did Luke, the writer of the gospel of Luke, as well as Acts, tell us to consider the facts? Why? Why did anyone write this stuff down and present us with the evidence of the resurrection and of the truth of Jesus Christ? Uh, faith means just that. Faith, says Harry, not reason. He's, he's creating a false dichotomy of faith and reason. They're two sides of the same coin. They're not competing against one another. Faith and reason help us evaluate the evidence. And he's saying that we shouldn't even consider the evidence. That's explicitly what he says. The Bible warns, says Harry, that we need to be on guard for those who will deceive us. And this is a prime example. Note how subtly Piper works. He quotes expert theologians, not the Bible itself. That's a false claim. The premise to my argument quoted the Bible, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians. And Harry's ignoring that. And he's also suggesting that because I'm quoting people that are a little smarter than him or me, that that somehow is a bad thing. And then Harry concludes by talking about the five solas. Um, and I agree with the five solas. Christians are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. I agree with all of that. But nothing in the solace says that we are to abandon reason, rationality. I've talked about the quadrilateral many times. History, tradition, reason, scripture, and experience. History, reason, experience, and scripture. Reason is something that God has given to us. I would argue that it is the thumbprint of God on our heart, mind, and soul. And ironically enough, Harry is using that very capacity. He's using reason, a rational argument, to refute a rational argument. This progressive lack of self-awareness, it's just ongoing. It never ceases to amaze me. It's the dog chasing its tail. It's sawing off a branch upon which you sit. It's the pot calling the kettle black. It's pointing one finger of accusation outward while not recognizing you have three pointed back at yourself. It's, it, it, it makes no sense while you're arguing that it makes sense. Or you're saying there is no such thing as common sense and my sense of what's common tells me that there's nothing, there's no such thing. There's nothing that is common to sense. 
It's like saying, I can't tolerate your intolerance. I hate those hateful people. I'm sure that nothing's sure. I know nothing can be known. I'm absolutely confident there are no absolutes. And it's reasonable for me to condemn you for using reason to defend the faith. It, it's absurd. It is literally absurd for the progressives to continue to do this. Which leads me into the last minute or two of the show. Another critic uh, started disparaging Christians, a critic of this column that I wrote. He just started railing off against Christians, mocking them, maligning them. How ridiculous are Christians? Well, here's the point on this one. So if you're going to criticize Christians, um, are you going to be as quick to criticize other communities like the so-called LGBTQ community or BLM community or the abortion rights community. Um, the, the accusations against Christians for being bigots, judgmental, don't you realize that when you yourself call somebody else a bigot that you're betraying the fact that you are a bigot because the definition of a bigot is somebody who holds antith- antipathy, someone who has antipathy toward another group of people based on their beliefs. So you're going to criticize Christians for X, Y, or Z, for being judgmental or being stupid or being silly or being superstitious, whatever it is you're accusing Christians of, but don't you realize that when you call them bigots, that you're betraying the fact that you're a bigot because bigotry is defined by holding antipathy towards somebody else because of their beliefs. Hmm, interesting. Harry saws off the branch upon which he sits while his fellow bigots turn around and call everybody else they disagree with bigots. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to conclude you can't make this stuff up. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.